Well, this time the kids are dismissed to Children's Church. I'm, I'm getting a look from my daughter. <laughs> You'll learn about Jesus. All right. Um, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. And we are in this great, this is a great book. Uh, it's a book that is about God's faithfulness and God's people's unfaithfulness. And as we come to our second look at Jephthah, uh, we have our hands full. Um, to be honest, when I get to heaven, I'm, I'm preaching confidently, but I'm still going to ask Jephthah what happened, dude. I mean, this is probably one of the most difficult passages in the book, as well as in the Old Testament, to, to preach, to, to understand, um, to emotionally get your mind wrapped around, <laughs> much less, yeah, so you will see as we read. So let's, let's read our passage and, and see what God will teach us today. Judges chapter 11, verse 12, this is God's word. It says, Then Jephthah sent the messenger, messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to, to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then, then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Kamosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and Arior, Arorir, yeah, and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead, and from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes, from, comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Eror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Ebel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, and I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he set her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy, and even this is given to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know us. You know the human heart through and through. You know what we are afraid of giving up, of afraid of changing. And so I pray today that as we look at this hard text, uh, you would show us Jesus in the midst of us, Lead us to a deeper appreciation for his sacrifice on our behalf so that we might be willing to respond in kind, uh, to, give, to give up what we love most so that we might have you. And as the psalmist said, your steadfast love is better than life. So may we taste that reality today. Send your spirit to teach us uh, to submit to your will as Jesus already did for us on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai, there was discovered long ago a work of art that dates back to the 600s, right? So, this is, this is an ancient painting, and it's a, there's two panels side by side. One is Father Abraham uh, holding a knife over his son Isaac with the famous ram caught in the thicket behind him, right, honoring the saint uh, the heroes of the faith that came before. And immediately next to Abraham is another panel, this one of St. Jephthah. And in the portrait, it, it's pretty hideous. I mean, it's, it's hard to make out. There's a lot of restor restoration, but he had a sword, and it's shocking. Imagine coming to church and seeing the sword actually carrying out the vow that we just read, killing his beloved child, 
complete with her terrified face. I mean, I imagine it's there to show the cost of salvation to get you to connect to Jesus. But what's shocking about it is the way they equate Jephthah and Abraham together. And I'm sure, I mean, I have a hard time even saying these things out loud as a parent. If this is your first time reading through Judges, maybe you're swearing you'll never read through it again. This is disturbing and nauseating. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are inside the faith or outside the faith. It makes you angry. Uh, It makes God angry. We'll talk about some of those verses in a moment. Richard Dawkins, when he reads the Bible and says, here's why I hate God, he goes to this passage. He says, I hate the God that would be okay with human offering. He says, yes, Jephthah tore his clothes in tears, but God was obviously looking forward to the sacrifice. (laughs) Not a good theologian, so just don't quote me on that later. See, John Calvin, if he preached sermons on judges, we lost them. right? But this great theologian and pastor, when he thinks of a dumb vow, a dumb promise that people make to God, he comes back to Jephthah and goes off on a rant. He calls it diabolical. It's written and recorded in Scripture to keep us from using religion to do dumb things. Don't make dumb religious vows, which is a good application at any time. Don't promise dumb, diabolical, and demonic things trying to get God to do what you want. Um, Except, now that I am coming to the text and now I have to preach this hard thing, here's the interesting thing. I'm not 100% convinced that Jephthah actually killed his daughter. There are two ways to read the text in the history of the church. There are those who believe that Jephthah went through with it and God magnifies his grace in 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 all of the darkness. And there are those who believe otherwise that she, is, she lived her life to the end of her days and Jephthah went through her, kept her vow. And I confess, when I, I used to be on the, he actually went through with it side. Until recently, I would be with everyone else saying, Jephthah, dude, really? <laughs> Murdering your daughter to get God to do what you want is not a healthy expression of anyone's faith. Besides, in the Old Testament, there were ways you could get out of a vow through sacrifice. Why didn't you do that? I mean, that was, my, that was my view. But, you know, in the midst of it, I just took the view that God, uh, well, he uses messed up people with broken pasts who still need to learn lessons and all the rest. He uses fools to rescue foolish people in the Old Testament. Praise God for his grace. And that is one way to read this. But I think um, I'm, I'm more pro-Jephthah on this. This is going to be a little more technical because this is a hard passage. Um, that the context of Judges and the context of the Scriptures, they all talk positively about Jephthah. So we're going to have to wrestle with that. Because right? remember the context. Jephthah has already firsthand experienced the pain and rejection of what it is like to be God in relationship with Israel. He is... The Lord is with the judge, and God's people hate the judge. That's what we learned last week. Um, And now, I think this is what we're going to see, is Jephthah is going to experience the cost of redemption. The giving up of his only child, his beloved child. It's this visible, painful picture of our unfaithfulness costing the life of a faithful child. Obviously foreshadowing Jesus. And so, 
Here's what I want you to see. Jephthah is doing a good thing here. It's an honorable thing. It's a sacrifice that makes him a man that Hebrews said is of which the world is not worthy. We ought to, I believe, praise his living sacrifice and praise his daughter's willingness to go along with the plan. This is astounding. Right? I don't think he killed his daughter. So just be clear. Make sure you hear me saying that. Don't praise the killing of the daughter. Praise that she's still alive. Because the scriptures hate anybody who would participate in any kind of religion that would try and manipulate God through human sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12. You shall not worship your, the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates that they have done for their gods, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. God hates this stuff. Psalm 106 does the same thing. He says, Israel, in their unbelief, imitated their neighbors. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out the innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Thus God got angry, and he abandoned the, the, he abhorred his heritage. I don't know what I'm doing here, sorry. <laughs> Maybe I'll just stay still the rest of the time. Here's what I think happened. Jephthah didn't kill his daughter. He gave her as a living sacrifice. He gave her to the Lord. And the text is going to help us see that, and then we're going to ask the hard question, okay, now that we see what, now that we understand the passage, what do we do with it? Do I need to switch mics? Can you hear me okay? Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so, Here's what I think. The, the examples of faith that Jephthah and his daughter show us are asking you and I, how do you respond to God's gracious redemption? How do you respond to a God who saves an unfaithful people when you were the unfaithful? And so let's look at it, and we'll, we'll apply it here at the end. Let's look at Jephthah the wise warrior. This is the first part. The context, right, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. His brothers hated him. They kicked him out of the house, and then when they needed him, they came back and said, you're a mighty warrior. We want you to be our head, our commander. We want you to fight for us because the Ammonites are too strong for us. And Jephthah graciously agrees to be, to be used like that. And so the first order of business when we come to verse 12 is for Jephthah. He has to deal with this massive army camped against them. <laughs> I'm going to switch mics if that's possible. That's weird. Once a year it has to do this to us. <laughs> yeah, so what Jephthah has to do now is deal with the Ammonites. He has to deal with this army that have come. This was the whole reason he was chosen and hired, so to speak. And what, what I found fascinating is this guy who grew up in a bloodthirsty culture. Right? It says he, he was surrounded by worthless fellows. He lived in the, the, the ancient equivalent of the hood where violence is how you thrived. It's how you survived. Um, what he does first is try and use words. He seeks reconciliation, not reconciliation, he seeks peace through words, not through the sword. Right, where he goes to, he sends messengers to the king of Ammonites saying, why have you come against me? What's your deal? What's your beef? Why have you come to fight against me and my land? And it, the king of the Ammonites says, well, it's your fault. 
Israel stole that, our land centuries ago. Give us back what belongs to us. It sounds like a normal uh, custody battle, a normal boundary marker, right? You put your fence on the wrong side. Let's, let's, let's duke this out, except the Ammonites have an army. And what's, I'm pro-Jephthah here, so it's just amazing to see the depths of Jephthah's Bible knowledge. I mean, who has Israel's journey mapped out from Egypt through the wilderness coming up into the promised land as your favorite scripture verse for the day? Right. He, has, he gives an accurate history of how Israel was given land east of the Jordan River without causing unnecessary conflict, without taking the Ammonites' land, I mean, the whole reason they, the, the Gileadites live where they live on the east side of the Jordan River is because they were attacked by people who didn't trust them, and they won the battle and they took the land. Right. So they won the land in a war of self-defense. That's Jephthah's point. And, of course, the nail in the coffin in his, in his war of words is saying, it's been 300 years. You have not complained yet. Why are you, why are you upset about this now? I have not sinned against you. You're about to commit evil against me. May the Lord be judge between us. And the point is, is you're getting a, a picture of Jephthah, the redeemer, the rescuer, who is, he's not as violent as our imaginations want him to be. Uh, he uses words first. He, sure, he's a mighty warrior. He's got skills but he's willing to try the gentle answer to turn away wrath, to seek peace, to not have to go to war first. It's the path of wisdom. Ultimately, he entrusts himself to the one who judges justly, but it, it's this idea that Jephthah speaks words of reason, he speaks words of, of peace to try and bring peace to the conflict, and the problem is it was a one-sided argument. The king of the Ammonites didn't listen. And so this is a bonus application before we get to, to the vow. Right. The whole point of, you know, as you're seeing Jephthah, and I'm, I'm, I want us to see the connection that Jephthah's experience mirrors, mirrors God's experience with his people. If you want to know what it's like to be God, look at Jephthah. Right. He was hated. He was despised. He was rejected and only, only asked for help when we needed him. That, that was last week. Here you have God, Jephthah experiencing... Um, what it's like for people to not listen to him. First, it's going to be the Ammonites, and then next chapter, next week, we're going to see how it's, it's his own people, the Ephraimites. They don't listen either. Right? The king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah, and Jephthah's just grown up in a life of unprovoked hostility against him. He's not perfect by any means, but this is just the, the portrayal that the, the book gives. All right? God's enemies are now Jephthah's enemies. He takes this personally. And this is, is this not the problem in any, well, all of our conflicts, right? especially with God. But this is, this is a horizontal conflict, so I want to apply it to our relationships here. Right? Because you have a visible picture of unbelief. He heard him, he just didn't listen. I mean, that's the, the whole testimony of the Old Testament of God's people hearing God speak, hearing what they ought to do, hearing what we should do, the hear the Lord's voice, we, we, you know, love justice. Sorry, I'm misquoting here. Love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with our God. And the, the testimony of the Old Testament is Israel doing the opposite. 
That in our unbelief with God, we hear and don't hear, and, and when that pattern often repeats itself then with one another, that we hear what people's complaints are, but we really don't hear them. And what I love about Jephthah is his willingness to pursue the path of wisdom, choosing words rather than being really quick to draw swords and duke it out. He's not running in ready to rage and, and fight. He's trying to use w- wisdom. And in conflict, that's the real problem. When I am in an argument, I, I have a really hard problem hearing what somebody is saying to me. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be told I'm wrong. I hear the words, but they're, they're pinging off my hard heart because they may or may not be true. Right. And so I think one of the applications we can take as a bonus application is when armies are amassed against you, literally or figuratively, Speak words of reason and peace. A soft answer often turns away wrath. Pray, God, help me hear the complaints of the other person in the room to hear what they're saying, to see if my sin is actually sin, to see if there's real wrong between us. That's what Jephthah's doing. He's wrestling with that. Do they have a just cause against us? And the answer is no. And if there is no just cause, then you can... this is one of the most helpful th- tips I've ever received and when it comes to dealing with conflict. is uh, There will be a, gr- a seed of truth most often in every bit of criticism. There probably is. Maybe not all of it. But your, our job as Christians is to own up to the truth. That's why we confess our sin. Hel- say, God, help me hear what is real and true about me and then help me discard what is not true. Jephthah is, is helping us get a little bit glimpse of what it looks like to navigate much more complicated conflict than we find ourselves in. Maybe not, actually. Conflict feels like war when somebody disagrees and criticizes. So, pro-Jephthah, he is a wise warrior who first tries words to bring peace, and that turns out not to be possible. So now we come to the infamous vow. He knows now he's going to have to do battle. Right? He's, he's tried to not be the, to go on the offensive. This is going to be a defensive war in the sense of the Ammonites coming against them. Right? And so when it comes to the vow, here's how you re- this is how I process hard passages, and I think this is helpful. It's a principle of biblical interpretation that whenever you come to a passage that's hard to understand, lean on the passages that are, that are much more clear. So use other passages to make clear what is happening here. And when I do that and, say, and start looking elsewhere, what does the Bible say about Jephthah? The Bible is pro-Jephthah. He gets praise. Here's what the book of Judges says about him in chapter 2. It tells you how to read what's coming. Judges chapter 2 says, Whenever the, the Lord raises up judges, the Lord is with the judge to save them. But Israel did not listen to the judge. And it's this picture of the judges being good in the sense that the Lord is with them and using them. And the judge also will, will be ignored because the Lord is ignored. Right? It's this picture of the, the, the judges being the heroes, the, the instruments in God's hands being used to rescue Israel. And Israel is the, the antagonist, the enemy. And and the introduction says, Israel's going to get worse, God's going to keep saving them, and each subsequent judge 
then is going to seem brighter and brighter in light of the, the increasing darkness of unbelief of Israel. And this is, this is what's really hard to judge the judges. Because if the Lord is with the judge when he rescues, to judge the judge is to judge the Lord the judge. Right? There's a lot of judging going on. That Jephthah, that God has identified himself with Jephthah in chapter 2. And it tells you what to read, what's, how to read what's coming. Later, you come to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Jephthah is included as a hero who saves Israel. Along with Gideon and Barak, he's praised. Hebrews 11, which I keep repeating over and over again. Um, verse 32, he's listed in the same hall of faith as uh, Samson and Gideon and Barak and David and Samuel, someone mistreated, afflicted, commended for his faith, of whom the world was not worthy. Jephthah gets some of the highest praise in all of Scripture. He's a witness to what Jesus would do. All right. And so here's the, the, the challenge when you come to this text. The Bible says he is someone we should honor as an imperfect tool in the hands of a perfect God. And yet we have this vow that sounds like he did this horrific thing that nobody should ever praise. All right? And so what I'm doing is going to let this, I'm going to lean into Hebrews and say, okay, the Bible praises Jephthah. I need to praise him and let that shape what he does. Second, when you look at verse 29, it says the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And then he goes to war. And it's while he's clothed with the Spirit, while he's filled with the Spirit, that he makes this vow. That's the implication. That see God's Spirit working through Jephthah and what comes next. And now I know, I know the argument, right? I'm, I'm a sinner who has the Holy Spirit and I do dumb things. And yet it, the way the, the, the book of the Judges uses the Spirit it's always to do something good for Israel. Samson is the most spirit-filled judge in the book. We're going to see that here in a couple weeks. Right. So Jephthah's praise, this seems to be a spirit-filled vow. And then you ask, okay, well, what is the vow? And you look at verse 30. Jephthah says, God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whoever comes out of my house to meet me, when I return in peace shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. And it sounds like what first read what Jephthah is doing is saying, God, I really want to win. And so if you give me the victory, uh, then, I'll, then I'll give you a sacrifice, whoever comes out of the door or whatever. It's ambiguous. And I mean, who hasn't done that kind of bargaining with God? God, if I, if I tithe today, help me get that job. <laughs> you know, if I... If I pray, if I get my act in order, Lord, help that person notice me romantically. You know, all these different bargaining tools that we use. But the tricky part with this is there's several ways you could read the, the this is why this is so complex, right? One of the ways Jephthah could also be saying, he could also be saying, whoever comes out of my house to meet me will belong to the Lord. It could also say, or I will give it, it for a burnt offering. Right? It, it sounds like he could be saying, if it's a person, I'm going to give them to the Lord and, as a, and dedicate them and then give them into a life of service and ministry, and they're going to live a life of singleness forever in the house of the Lord. 
And if it's an animal, to the flames it goes. Right? I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. Right? So it's, what we know is Jephthah fully expected a person to come out those doors. You can't avoid it. And so maybe it was an animal, but most likely it, he knew it was going to be a woman. Maybe he was hoping it was a servant girl. Maybe there was a really obnoxious family member who overstayed the welcome. <laughs> but the point is, the vow is to offer a person to the Lord if that's who comes first. And if it's an animal, then it'll be a, an act, an offering. Right. And the word, the word for and can be translated and or or, and that's the complexities of this. I don't like to get this technical, but this is just a technical passage. Fourth, right? he knows it's going to be a woman. I mean, this was the tradition. Uh, women would come out to celebrate the victory first, so he, he was confident this was going to happen. What he didn't expect with his daughter, and that's the, the, the grief in the section. When he come, but one of the a- added points that I find really helpful is this. Offerings in the Bible are not always literal. So Jonathan Edwards, a pastor much smarter than me, I'm going to lean on him, um, brilliant pastoral heart, he just says, look, offerings are used all over the Old Testament as a metaphor. Used of people, metaphorically, throughout the Bible. Our obedience, doing God's will, in Psalm 40 is seen as better than a burnt offering. It's seen as a sacrifice. Psalm 51 says, God, the sacrifice you require is a broken and contrite heart. It uses the language of an animal burning to describe our confession. What, here's, here's the one that's really relevant is, is this thing called a wave offering. <laughs> right, where people are described as an offering, and this is not... Um, the wave offering is probably not part of your devotional reading, <laughs> right? It's in Leviticus, that part where all uh, Bible readings plans go to die. Right. In, in Leviticus and Numbers, there's this thing called a wave offering. The priest would have an animal, a piece of an animal given to them, and, and they would do this. Uh, they would act out the offering, because an offering is just the word to go up. And so they would take the piece of the animal. Here's, here's the, the leg of a lamb. Let me lift it up like I'm giving it to the Lord. And it was a symbolic gesture of saying, God, this belongs to you. It's a physical lifting. And then in Numbers 8, what happens, there's this place where God says, I I want you to give me all the priests as a wave offering. (laughs) I want you to give the priests as a wave offering. Which I imagine if you are a a priest, you're really hopeful that this is not a, (laughs) this is metaphorical, right? Because if, what they would do is they would, would take the animal piece, offer it up to the Lord, and then throw it on the flames. Now, God says, do that for the priests. I mean, it's a really hard pastor recruiting program, saying, give yourself to the Lord, jump into the flames. And the idea is it's just metaphorical of saying, if you are a priest, you belong wholly to the Lord, and you will serve him all the days of your life. You belong to him. And so what Jephthah is doing is seemingly, he says, she, the, the person who comes out to meet me, she will belong to the Lord, she'll be, she'll be an offering of response to grace rather than trying to manipulate grace. 
Right? And so that's, that's the fifth point, is Jephthah vows to give his daughter to the Lord as a living sacrifice to serve God for the rest of her days as a single woman in the tabernacle. She's dedicated, much like Samuel, uh, as a child being given to the Lord to, to grow up. Right? And so that's, that's the pain in here. Just put yourself in Jephthah's shoe. You have, you have one child, one hope for your family line to continue. And you make this vow before the Lord. You're going to honor his rescue, his grace, his redemption all done for you. And the one you have to give up is the one you love most. It's painful. No more grandchildren. No grandchildren ever. Right? Jephthah gives up his daughter to marry the Lord. I think that's the picture here. Right, you remember Othniel back at the beginning? Uh, Caleb saw this town and said, all right, if there, I want to find the real man out there. Whoever takes this town, I will give him my wife. And Othniel rises up and he goes to war and he takes the town and he and Axa live happily, forever, happily ever after, right, in the, in the Hebrew way. She is given to the victor. That's what it seems like Jephthah is doing. Is this woman comes out, his daughter, his beloved daughter, and because the Lord got the victory and gave him the victory, he's going to give his daughter in marriage to the Lord to live a life of singleness and service. And that's what helps me make sense of all the obsession with the virginity and, and why she's so sad about it, because she's not going to get married. I mean, I know you can connect that to death. It's part of the the wrestling here. But if she's not going to have children and she's going to be married to the Lord, she's weeping. She's weeping about the end of her inheritance, the end of her hopes uh, of being a wife, of being a mother in that regard. She's weeping for her virginity with her friends. And one of the odd things or interesting things, to, if you think Jephthah actually put his daughter in the flames as a burnt offering, you're going to read verse 40 as everybody commemorating, remembering, uh, remembering Jephthah's daughter with tears. But if you take the view that I do, that she, she's alive and well, uh, that, she, that Jephthah did with his vow as he had vowed, and he gave her to the Lord in marriage, the other way to translate that same word lament is to celebrate, to honor, to commemorate, to praise in song. That, that what they're celebrating, remembering, is the humble sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter saying to her father, do to me as you have said. Her submission to her father's will became contagious. You know, this beautiful act of obedience and sacrifice in the midst of all the ugliness of the judges. And so that's Jephthah's living sacrifice. He gives up his only daughter, whom he loves, to end his family line out of respond loving response to the Lord. You know, what this is, you know what this helps me do? And I think it helps us. It gives us a category. As Christians, we, because we talk about Jesus and sacrifice and, and obedience and keeping God's word and keeping God's will, and we use these languages, we even sing it. We sing it about Jesus often on the, the days that we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the wondrous cross, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. 
Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose a crown? And then it talks about sacrifice. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my awe. See, when you see Jephthah giving up his life, metaphorically, you're supposed to see that sacrifice done in faith hurts. It's painful to make any major changes in your life because you love Jesus and his grace. When Jesus says, take up my cross and follow me, that's not a pleasant image. It's, it's a painful image. Jephthah is cl- taking up a cross, so to speak, following Yahweh, giving up his daughter. It's heart-rendingly painful. And yet, this is how the New Testament describes the Christian faith. Listen to Paul in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, to do what is good and perfect in the will of God. we, We can praise Jephthah for this amazing act of faith that he faithfully does what Israel ought to have done in relationship to their God, who was faithful when they were faithless. He responds with sacrificial obedience, giving up his daughter. And his daughter responds in faith, saying, Do it to me, Father, as you have said. It seems like there's an act of faith in the midst of unbelief surrounding them. So what do you do with all that? And this is going to lead us to the table. I think we get two pictures here that will lead us to communion. Two pictures. I'm going to do some biblical theology to help you process this. First, it's just beautiful. Jephthah shows us the cost of salvation. Putting Abraham and Jephthah on the panel together is is intentional. The cost of salvation, the cost of a father who has to give up what he loves most in order to gain... And, and protect and save his people. Isaiah 53 says it was the will of God to crush Jesus on the cross. And I think what Jephthah does is help us see the heartrending decision it is for the father to give up a child. We see it with Abraham going up the mountain. You know, just waited for years for God to be faithful to his promise. And it says he... Hebrews tells us he went up by faith, fully hoping and assuming and expecting that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he did not stop him. But Jephthah, Jephthah had to deal with the pain of that giving up day in and day out. This is painful. Right? And then the daughter helps us see the beauty of the plan where the father and child work together. See the wonder of Jesus' obedience to God's plan to rescue sinners through through Jesus' death on a cross set up before the foundation of the world. God the Father says, makes a vow. I will save sinners. I swear by myself to do this. I will send a son born of a woman. And then God the Son promises, I will come down from heaven to earth. I I will keep what my Father has vowed to do. I will volunteer to be crushed for your iniquities. It's this picture of a father and child together, not at odds. So this just gives you a taste of, I think, what what God does for us 
before the foundation of the world, being completely united in God, God being completely united in his plan for you to rescue us, an unfaithful people. This is astounding. Right? There's no abuse. It's Jesus volunteering, submitting to his Father's will. It's Jesus agreeing to endure the cross, despise the shame of being rejected for the joy set before him. It's, it's a picture of radical obedience simply because of the love of the Father. Right. So Jephthah shows us the cost of salvation, and lastly, Jephthah's daughter shows us the rational response. I mean, she just says, it sounds an awful lot like Mary, does it not? When the angel says, you're going to have a child, Father, do to me what your words have spoken. She submits, and she submits in a way that's contagious among everyone around her. And this is, I think, how we, we are to respond to the gospel, a life of sacrificial obedience, giving up what we love most so that we might have Jesus. Responding to grace. I'm going to end this way by reading uh, one of the most moving ideals of what, it looks, what sacrificial obedience looks like for the Christian. It's written by B.B. Warfield talking about Jesus and then, and then what we ought to do in response. It's imitating Jephthah's daughter. I will do. She, she obeyed in this one instant. Jesus did this for a whole lifetime and into eternity past. So here's what Warfield writes about Jesus. Jesus did not cultivate his self, not even his divine self. He took no account of himself. He was not led by his divine impulse out of the world, driven to spend his own time brooding morbidly over his own needs until he decided to, to sacrifice because it felt like it was worth it to him. No, it, Jesus was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice himself once for all upon the altar of compassion and grace. It was self-sacrifice that brought Jesus into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever people strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men and women fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever folks succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and the people around us. It means absorption into them. It means the forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longing and despairs. It means the many-sidedness of spirit, the multiplicity of your sympathy and compassion. It means the richness of development. It means we should not live one life but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. This is an ideal. It means that all the experience of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fittedness for their heavenly home. It is, after all, then, the path to the highest possible development by which we become truly men. Not that we shall undertake it with this view. We cannot be self-consciously self-forgetful and selfishly unselfish. <laughs> but when we walk this path, seeking it truly in it, not our own things, but those of others, we will find the promise true that he who loses his life shall find it. 
It's only when, like Jesus, and in loving obedience to his call and example, and we freely give ourselves to others, that's when we will find the saying true of ourselves, where God, wherefore also God has highly exalted him. <laughs> he wrote a long time ago. Man, it is beautiful. It's telling you this, that one moment of obedience that we see in Jephthah and his daughter, that was Jesus' entire life poured out in self-sacrifice. And the path to glory is not to use others for our good, but to serve them. And so as we come to the table here in a moment, we are tasting of a life that was beautifully submitted in every aspect of his life to God's will, a life of self-sacrifice lived because he loves you, even to death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us be imitators of you, to walk in love as Christ loved us, to, as he gave himself up for us, to be a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to our God. So thank you for, for Jephthah, his willingness to give up what he loves, and his daughter's willingness to live a life of self-sacrificing service. Uh, fill us with the Spirit, Lord, so that we may be empowered to live like our Savior lived. And we long for the day where that ideal we just read, where everybody thinks of their neighbors more than themselves, that will be the normal in the new heavens and new earth, where selfishness will be obliviated. So Jesus, we pray that you would come and, and give us a taste of that here in, in, at Hope Church here in Boston Spa. In Jesus' name, amen.